think the biggest thing is that with AI, um, you are definitely going to create net new roles in the in the team that you had never thought of before. And there's not going to be a playbook for that. And the HR person and the recruiter is not going to know how to help you with that. And you're going to have to figure those things out together as a team. Design will be less about UI in the in the future and more about different methods of communicating and also thinking, right? So designing how a thinking machine thinks. Hi, I'm Mike Green and welcome to Understanding Users, the podcast where I chat candidly with UX design and research professionals from around the world to hear about how they build digital products and services in a user-centered way. Hi, Mike. Nice to see you again. Um, I'm Chris Reardon. Um, I'm recently the uh, head of product design at Meta for the Responsible AI Group, um, where I helped manage a large team, a horizontal team across all of Meta's products, making sure that AI um, was designed and and engineered to the expectations at Meta. Um, I got into AI about 10, 11 years ago. Um, I was a, a senior executive creative director at um, Ogilvy and & Mather. And um, Ogilvy is an agency, an ad agency. And we had IBM as our main client. Um, I was brought on as the digital guy, the UX guy, to work with um, two other creative directors who were on the TV uh, side of things. And we helped um, figure out how to manage the brand globally, And also, I helped launch IBM Watson. Um, So I helped uh, with the branding um, and got um, invited to sit on the leadership team at IBM and think about the go-to-market plan um, and help launch the actual business unit as well. Ginny Remitti had joined the company um, about six months prior to my joining and made quite significant changes in the direction of the company. Um, They invested a billion dollars in IBM Watson at the time. And as I worked on it, um, got to really kind of think through like how thinking machines um, could act. And one of the concepts that sort of came to mind was if you have a machine that can learn anything, who should teach it? You know, how should this thing learn? And it's really important. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a parent and, you know, thinking about the teachers in school for my child, you know, you know, what are they learning? What kinds of books are they, you know, sourcing and things like that? You know, if this thing is going to um, grow and learn and, and have scale and teach people what it learns, um, you really want to make sure that what's going into it is really uh, accurate and um, is going to lead to the kind of outcomes that you really care about in society. And you know, unfortunately, IBM's Watson didn't really deliver on the promise at the time. It's definitely improved now. Um, but I wanted to learn more about the behind the scenes and how it actually worked. So I went from you know, really just sort of thinking about the storytelling and narratives of, of what this ideal AI system should be to actually how it should really work, what kinds of tool sets should be used to build and maintain it. And, you know, Storytelling is still to this day a really important part of my job and is really helpful for product teams because by creating that story of how you want users to um, work with the AI is, is part of it. How engineers should work and build up the AI is, is part of it. Um, what the ethical and um, regulatory um, outcomes that you hope 
will will manifest from this system are, are really important as well. So once you gain that kind of story and that narrative, everybody can get on the same page. If if all the stakeholders are agreeing and holding hands and saying yes, this is the the goal. This is where we want to go. You can kind of work backwards from that that kind of outcome. So you know, since since Ogilvy, um, I've really just become obsessed with AI and. Um, in between Ogilvy and Meta, I worked on um, a natural language assistant. Um, so natural language understanding, natural language processing. Um, the assistant was connected to an automation backbone. So you could pick up the phone and call it. Uh, the name of it was Amelia. And um, it would um, access whatever um, the customer had configured Amelia to do. So imagine calling and you know, purchasing tickets on a plane or rescheduling, it could do those kinds of things. Um, and I was there for about three and a half years. And um, we got it to a point where we had a virtual human where you could video call with it and and not really know that it was a, a person. It was very, very realistic. Um, and as I worked more and more on this thing and it became more high fidelity, I got more and more paranoid and scared of how manipulative this thing could be. And, and so my journey of learning again continued. And that's when I moved to Meta to kind of figure out uh, how to do this ethically and what um, frameworks and protections I needed to put in place to make sure people understood they were talking with uh, a synthetic human being and not you know, a synthetic machine um, and not being missled by what it was saying um, in any way, misled. Um, so um, that's when I joined Meta and started figuring out how to design responsible systems. Now, that, that's a really uh, a sort of stellar roll call of, of names on your CV there, Chris. I'll come back to Amelia and, and kind of Watson and so on in a minute, but I'm interested to know uh, what was your kind of original kind of academic background? How did you, you know, go, going back further in your career, how did you start out? Yeah, I started out. Um, so if we go all the way back, I've been drawing ever since I was a kid and I went to um, art college. I went to Kingston University. Um, I did a foundation in, in art and design. And we studied industrial design, architecture, print, um, all kinds of, you know, sort of manual things, which I still do today. I'm still an artist today, still draw every day. I, I do hyper-realistic um, drawing. And um, then I did a graphic design degree at Kingston as well. So it's, you know, that, that has served me well. I think the things that I learned at Kingston were... Um, very much about the why of the work, the strategy behind why you would design something. And that's always been, even as a kid, I was always making things that, you know, why am I making this toy? I would make my own toys and and have a real plan for why I was making it a certain way. And, and that has sort of made me an unusual character because I got bored with graphic design and I've got lots of friends who are amazing graphic designers and illustrators and so on. And I don't want to take away from what they, they do at all. My, my goal has always been to learn how to make something inherently um, valuable beyond its initial um, purpose. 
Um, so even when I was designing packaging, I would try and make the packaging be something that you could reuse in some other way. So whether it's just a, a beautiful thing that sits on your desk or it's actually got a secondary purpose where you can reuse it as something else. Those are always things in the back of my mind. So um, as you know, digital has, has grown, that's just been my sweet spot because obviously with um, coding, you can pretty much do anything and, and just extend the life of something beyond its original design. And what do you love about what you do, Chris? What kind of excites you and gets you up in the morning? I, I, I'd say if I were to distill it to, to one thing, it's actually finding the hardest question to ask. So it's not about the solution. I actually really, really love finding the hardest, most important question to ask. Because when you do that, you enable everybody in the room's light bulbs to go off. And so I don't want to get in the way of other people coming up with amazing ideas. What I want to do is help create the right environment for them to thrive in. And the right environment is the constraints of a really well um articulated question and so strategy for me is like um the the sort of ultimate creative expression um finding the right insight um and being able to tease out how to frame that insight as a question that just you know inspires everybody around you and conversely then what frustrates you or dare i say even kind of keeps you awake at night in terms of of what what you do and what you've done over the last few wow, years that is a good question um i would say there's not enough time in the day um and also i would say that most people think design is aesthetic still um and the reality is is design is actually about um structured thinking and I don't think that um, the C-suite really understands that well enough. Um, there are certain companies, obviously, where you can see that design has led the charge and not in the sense of aesthetic, but in the sense of um, the approach and the iteration and the um, fidelity of the work that the company delivers. So Apple is obviously the, the ultimate in that space. Um, and by by bringing that um, lens and that rigor to even to business decisions, um, incentive programs, other things where you're trying to build an environment where employees thrive and can do their best work um, is really the ultimate thing. So again, it's about creating that environment. And then there are other companies where there's lip service to that and they sprinkle it on at the end and you can definitely see the difference because those the product life cycle of those, they, they don't last as long. You look at the iPhone and how long it's been out and it's still, there's no there's nothing that comes close to it. And going back to, to Amelia, I think it was that you mentioned earlier, what were the kind of key takeaways that you learned, um, you know, both personally and professionally from, from working on, a, on something like that and from sort of subsequent pieces of work you were involved in? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that with AI, um, you are definitely going to create net new roles in the in the team that you had never thought of before. And there's not going to be a playbook for that. And the HR person and the recruiter is not going to know how to help you with that. And you're going to have to figure those things out together as a team. Because as new capabilities come online, um, 
you know inherently that there's design thinking needs in there. Somebody needs to structure this new capability in a way that both the people building it can can think about it and the end users can benefit from it in an intuitive way. So for example, with Amelia, um, when I first joined, it was just engineers scraping academic data sets for, for language and just plugging it straight in. And there was no um, coherent um, experience coming out of Amelia at that time. And so I created what we called at the time conversational designers. This is about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. And um, those, those people basically, you know, much like a script writer for a movie, would create scripts for this is what Amelia would say, this is what the end user would say back and forth. And obviously, it was very linear when we first started. But over time, we got um, clever with it and found new ways. As the technology became more sophisticated, we were able to start to break from just a linear approach and have more of a tree approach. And then, you know, uh, you know, sort of multi-directional approach to conversation. Um, and that required more support to the conversational designer. We ended up having conversational engineers who supported the conversational designers. Um, so, you know, even those roles themselves. And so you have to write job descriptions to hire those people. Then you have to start to figure out career plans for those people. So well, what is a level three versus a level five in that role? And how do I manage them? And how do I inspire them to grow? And, you know, how do I bonus them and promote them and so on. So, you know, what once you once you bought it, you have to own it and then you have to kind of grow it. And and that's one of the things that I think AI is going to do. So I think design will be less about UI in the in the future and more about um, different methods of communicating and also thinking, right? So designing how a thinking machine thinks is also going to be part of that. What is the name of that designer? I have no idea, but it's coming. In terms of kind of your own career path over the next few years, where do you see that going? Yeah, so I think my whole career, I've sort of tried to MVP the next role at the current role um, to see where I'm going. Uh, MVP, um, minimum viable product for the next role. The next role, I think, so I've been in sort of the academic role to some degree. We've definitely shipped things at Meta and, and um, influenced product and changed um, how things work. So I've influenced, so part of the role was um, I managed the platform team, which was working on the tools that engineers and data scientists use. So I influenced like those things and then also the, the front end for the end user. Um, but now I want to get really back in the weeds and start working on uh, products of the future again. So I think that's where I'm going to be headed. Um, I have a few offers and they're, they're all more in the future. So think two to five years out using the, the methods that I've developed at Meta in terms of responsible AI to make sure that sort of the underpinnings of the company uh, sort of foundationally will lead to responsible products. Um, so thinking through like, you know, the principles and values of the company, the mission statement, the incentivization program, how we make money, where we get data from, how we ethically source it and clean it and, and label it and so on. All those things that um, are in the press pretty much every day. 
um, structuring those things. So it might take a while before you even start to build any product. Um, but you, you have to do that to, to get to the, the right kind of um, mix of um, approach to, to, to deliver that kind of outcome. Fantastic. And one final question, Chris. It feels like that since ChatGPT launched, there's been this sort of Cambrian explosion of fascination with AI. But obviously, a lot of work, and you've talked about some of it now, has been going on for you know quite a long time. Some very bright people in all sorts of uh, organizations all over the world working on this. I'm just interested to know kind of why you think it, it it's burst into consciousness now and to what extent, let's say, ChatGPT or Bard can be thanked if that's the word for that interest it's a really interesting time um it's funny to have been working in something that has been sort of very um you know edgy and fringe almost for 10 10 11 years right and and my friends look at me like what you're you're working on this stuff and you know they're winning awards at can for really good slick commercials and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, what are you nerding out in the basement with? And now it's suddenly at the forefront, which is interesting. And so I'll be honest with you. And, and some of my friends are like this too. It's like, I don't want everybody to know. It's sort of a, a weird feeling of like, this is my thing. And, and now everybody knows. But I think the reality is, is, and this is the benefit of AI, is that now that chat GPT is here and other, other large language models are here, it has re, re, you know, lowered the barrier to entry for everybody, right? And now everybody can access these new capabilities. And I think that is um, just incredibly powerful. And now you're going to have a lot more stakeholders in the room with opinions about how AI should work, which is fantastic, right? For, especially from a responsible AI perspective. Because you don't have to have an engineering degree or a data science degree anymore to kind of grasp how these things work anymore. So I think just from that perspective, you know, a lot more opinions and journalism, uh, you know, is obviously, you know, talking about every day. But it it does, you know, you've, I, you've seen it recently in the news with, with certain leaders talking about AI and AI extinction level stuff. Those are all misinformation, disinformation things, right? That, that isn't talking about the real problems in AI today, which is, you know, companies are using massive farms of people in, you know, countries where they're paying them, you know, 30 cents an hour or whatever it is. It's, that's ridiculous. Like you can't build a system that is going to bring you billions in funding and not treat the people who are doing the work well. So in some, you know, in some ways, blowing the lid off and journalism starting to talk about it is good. And even the extinction level conversations is good because it's getting getting the conversation about AI bubbling to the surface, but it is a mis, mistruth, right? It's like, that's not the real problem. And it it's going to be a long, long time before anything like that happens. So I think it's, it's interesting to kind of, you, you kind of get the good with the bad with this. Um, which is which is um, which is kind of crazy, but I do think like natural language is going to open the door to creativity in a new way, um, and so you're going to be able to just literally talk to a bot and have it make a mobile app for you that does whatever you want it to do, which is fantastic, right? You can build your own custom app at home, 
and we're also going to be able to manage um, apps and deliver apps to to different kinds of people in different kinds of communities um, in ways that we had never done before. Instead of like designing one that tries to cram in everybody, we can get much more nuanced with those things. Um, I think we'll end up with having our own personal AI that will help protect us. Um, there's obviously, you know, the explosion of disinformation and misinformation. Uh, scamming is going to be exponential now because they can use those tools against us as well. And I think somebody smarter than me is going to come up with a, you know, equivalent of Norton antivirus for AI as a personal AI, right? I think we're going to need as individuals military grade uh, encryption and protection, um, you know, because... Yeah, you've already seen it in the news, uh, people cloning voices and, and uh, defrauding, you know, families of you know, thousands of dollars. Yeah, horrible. And that's only going to get worse. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, you know, so you, again, you take the good with the bad. Um, and that's where design, I think, is going to help us a lot. That's absolutely fascinating. And this is one part, I should say, of a, of a, of a ser short series of these episodes that we're going to do. So I'm going to say thank you so much, Chris, for chatting to me. And I really look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.